Good morning. Thank you. It's good to be here today and see everyone enjoying good fellowship. Let me interrupt. If you find a Bible or an app and turn to the book of Acts, find the book of Acts in the New Testament right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right before Romans. Find your way there. We are in Acts chapter 13. We have been cruising through the book of Acts for some months now, and we continue today in Acts 13. Today is a very interesting text because I get to preach a sermon on a sermon. So one of the elders remarked that it's good because all the points are made for me. Um, Actually, this is really difficult and kind of weird. So I get to preach a sermon from an apostle. (laughs) So I just think I'll read it and we'll just take off. Sound good? (laughs) No, you know me. I couldn't do that. Um, So we're in Acts 13, and we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read through the end of the whole chapter. And I've entitled today's sermon, Get Your Story Straight. Get Your Story Straight. So this is the first of the Apostle Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. We've seen several from others, Peter, and uh, we've seen some from Philip, and we saw a big long one from Stephen in chapter 7. But this is the Apostle Paul's first and longest sermon right here at the outset of his missionary journey with Barnabas. So we've been here for a while. So if you have just joined us, we've been um, in the book for several months, so you might want to go back and read up. But we're going to start in verse 13 today, Acts 13, 13. And I'm going to read all the way through 52. So pinch yourself, stay awake. And here we go. Luke wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, 
sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which is so interesting. Lord, thank you for your word, which is true and clear. Help us to see the clarity this morning. Lord, some of us are very tired. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to uh, wake up, Lord, not only physically, but spiritually. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who do not know you, who have not been freed from the law, but are under condemnation. Lord, that today they might feel experience, know, have true freedom. God, we know you can do that because it's through your word as we see here in this passage that salvation comes. Not through um, convincing, winsome arguments, although those are helpful. Lord, not through um, powerful miracles, although those are helpful. Lord, it's through your word. 
So we submit ourselves to your word this morning, knowing that you will do what is all your will this morning in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what makes a good sermon? I didn't say what makes a bad sermon. I said, what, what makes a good sermon? Truth and clarity. What's that? Understanding of the word. Conviction. Scripture-based heart. Okay. Application. Oh, boy. I'm going to write these down. Timing. And we're done. <laughs> Anything else? Concise. Oh, man, she said concise. <laughs> Jim. Equipping the saints. Relevancy. Relevancy. You guys have some opinions on these things. Huh. Who knew? Humility. Humility. Uh oh. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that, those are really helpful to hear and to hear come out of our mouths and think about what do we regard as a good sermon? Do we have right standards? Here is a good sermon. Here. Right here in the text, Paul gives us a sermon. Now, Luke recorded this. Is this word for word? Um, probably not. It's probably a very good approximation um, of what Paul said. I mean, I tend to think that Paul was probably a little more verbose than this. If I just read it. It didn't take very long. Otherwise, we're all in trouble because we haven't been following Paul's advice. But Paul spoke these words, and he has structure. He has references he has story he has direct appeal to the people it's very interesting to think about this because we're so conditioned in uh 2022 here in southern california with the air conditioning going the soft seats the microphone um this church people that you know a preacher that you know this is a very in some ways different setting so we want to kind of notice the similarities and notice the differences and see what is going on here because almost all of what I just read was sermon. There's, there's a little bit of prologue. Um, there's some fun action afterwards. But primarily here, we have a message. And I think what, what we don't want to do is say, well, good, this is for the few people in this church that preach, and so they better pay attention to this, including the guy speaking. No. <laughs> um, we're reading a sermon... We can glean from the sermon, and we also can pick up bits and pieces of what we can do in everyday life, right? When you're sitting uh, in the cubicle next to somebody, there are principles here for all of us. Um, when you're in the front yard working on something, when you're at the grocery store, there are principles here for all of us. There are very few times that a sermon actually happens, right? I mean, you all came here this morning. We have all this set up, all the sound and AV guys and the worship team and all the lights and everything happened this morning to make this happen. And that's not normal for real life. This is normal about once or twice a week. So I want us to, yes, evaluate the sermon as a sermon, but also to take from the sermon what we can use in our own lives. So let's get to work. What's going on here in this passage? Well, uh, I wrote there in your notes that a pattern emerges. And that's important to note because I think that's why Luke gives Paul so much uh, sermon here. There's other things that we're going to read from Paul where it's a sentence and it covers months. Um, there's other times where we get 
a two-verse sermon. There's other places where we'll get 10 or 20 verses. Um, so it's important for us to see that what we have here is a pattern. I think Luke does this on purpose to show this is normally what Paul and Barnabas do on this trip. This is how it happens. We're getting glimpses of months and months, years of this missionary journey. So a pattern emerges in which the gospel messengers spread the gospel message into new territory with boldness and effectiveness while also experiencing opposition and persecution. Okay, there's a pattern. That whole thing is a pattern. All of that is a pattern. We'll see all of it as we continue to go through the book of Acts for much of the rest of this year, I believe. Well, the first two verses, three verses, are prologue. Okay, so take a look there with me at verses 13 through 15. We have some details. We have some place names. We have some geography, which you know means maps. And we have kind of the movement. So in our previous passage, Paul and Barnabas had gone across the island of Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel. Um, we, we hear that they spoke the gospel in two places, but we assume from the text that they've done it in other synagogues and cities as they've gone through. And, and it's so important for us to notice. How many of you have uh, maps in the back of your Bible? You got a map? Hey, if you're using an app, is there access to a map? A map app? An app map? Yeah, that's kind of tough. So um, we're going to have some maps up here. But if you have a map in the back of your Bible, almost all Bibles that have maps will have Paul's journeys. So that's important for you to take a look at for two reasons. One, this really happened in a real place. You can go there. This is Turkey. This is the country of Turkey. Um, in fact, if you're uh, praying for the Muslim world, we prayed for Turks today. Um, interesting that the Lord would work that out for us. Um, but also, the second reason is because um, there's different places that Paul and Barnabas are going to go that we know because of very easy research. How many of you have a study Bible right now? You have a study Bible open in front of you. You have notes on these places. Like, you can check me <laughs> right now. Okay? Um, this, is, this is important to note that there are different places that they're going, real places where the gospel is being presented. And we read it in a verse. They walked it. They didn't drive it. They didn't fly it. They did take a boat. Okay? But this is an actual journey. So how many, day, how many miles did they go a day? Well, on a day that they were moving, probably 15 to 20 miles. About 15 to 20 miles on foot. It's almost assuredly that they were on foot. Um, probably very rarely did they ride um, in a wagon or on an animal. I mean, so as you read this, it's really easy for us to just zoom by it. Um, but, for, but for them, it was a journey. It was arduous. Um, we're going to see some mountains in a few pictures here. They're, they're climbing through mountains to get to these places. This is real legwork that was being done so the gospel could go forward. Okay? So, uh, they leave Paphos, they leave the island of Cyprus, and they come to Perga in Pamphylia. Alright, so they've left the island of Cyprus there that you can see, um, and they have gone up uh, to uh, um, a little bit inland to Perga, but a lot of places to to go uh, where they could dock. Uh, there's disagreement about exactly how they got to where they were going. That doesn't really matter that much, other than to say there are Roman roads everywhere here. And some of them go around, as this route would uh, show you. They would go on the Via Sebast, which would go around to a nice Roman road, rather than going on a backpacking trip through some of those mountains. What's the next picture? There we go. Good. There's a little bit of a zoom out to show you kind of the whole of this whole trip, which will be through the end of chapter 14. But this is where they've gone. This is probably a two 
to three year trip. Two to three years to cover this whole thing. Okay, I'm um, show the next picture real quick, please. Um, this is just a picture from Perga to the road that they would have taken. The road is still there. The cut in the hill is still there where they actually sliced away the mountain to make a road um, as they went. I, again, why am I doing this? Some of you are fascinated. Some of you are bored out of your minds. Um, this is a real place. I just want to keep saying this really happened. These are real people who have gone before us just as your life this week is real life. And you will encounter opportunities for the gospel. Next picture, please. This is just looking back from where they've come. This is um, the actual past. That's actually some Roman road right there um, on the ground. Next picture. Just showing you where they traveled through. Hills and mountains, the woods. Next picture. Here's the actual highway that's still there. Just waiting for you to put your feet where Paul's feet were as well. Um, this meant... Thank you. That's a great picture. This meant that there was um, some safety... So you're not making up a trail as you go along, which meant that the Romans could patrol the road. And God, in his mercy, holds off on sending his missionaries until the the Romans set up this highway system. Accidental? Or was the Lord setting up actual stones on roads for Paul and Barnabas to travel more efficiently, more quickly, more safely to share the gospel? Next one. Here's an aqueduct that's still standing. And this is actually in the place that they're headed. This is Antioch in Pisidia. The Romans knew how to build. Um, That's still there. Uh, The Romans built this place. um, When we talk about the city, we're talking about um, an urban area. Not a large city, but an urban area in the region where Paul and Barnabas went. All right. I think you got two more pictures. Yes. Uh, this is one of the main streets in Antioch, okay? So again, this is, these are the streets. In fact, can you see can you see the ruts in the rock there? There's ruts through the rock from the wagons as the wagons would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, you know, maybe they didn't get regular maintenance. Maybe they had to call their local councilman to get some <laughs> some holes filled in. But this is the actual road in Pisidian Antioch. The east-west road. Next picture, last picture. Um, this is the Temple of Augustus. Okay? This is built in A.D. 25. We're probably A.D. 45 for Paul. So 20 years. It's a relatively new um, building at the time. And um, hundreds of colonnades. Just hundreds of columns. This temple to Augustus dominated the center of the city where Paul and Barnabas show up. This is where they show up. To this place. That's helpful for us to know as uh, we dive in. Thank you for those pictures, Jeremiah. As you see in these place names, they're not just places to pass over. Also, when, we get, when they get to the land, what happens? John leaves. They had a little um, trio of travelers. And when they get to Asia Minor, John takes off. Um, this is like that point in the movie where they just randomly linger a shot on something. And you're like, what in the world? That doesn't make any sense. Just wait. John takes off, but Paul and Barnabas continue and they make it to Antioch and Pisidia. Now they left from Antioch on the Orontes. And I I love this. I was like, wait, so which Antioch are we talking about? Well, there were 16 Antiochs um, in the ancient world just in a small region because um, a ruler named Seleucus, 200 years before, wanted to honor his father Antiochus. And so he just started planting cities and uh, Antioch this, Antioch that, Antioch there, here in Antioch area. Everyone gets an Antioch. Antiochs 
all over the place. And so they needed to distinguish them from the others. This is Antioch in Pisidia there in verse 14. Now we zoom in on the day that this happens. It's a Sabbath day, which is Saturday. It's Shabbat. And Saturday, Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue and they sat down. They go to the synagogue like a good Jew would do on Saturday to go worship the God of the Jews. Usually, at the time, we think, we're pretty pretty confident of this, but basically in the Gospel of Luke, and then in Luke's sequel here in the book of Acts, we have two of the very earliest descriptions, brief they, they, they are, um, of a synagogue service. But we do know from later on how synagogue services went, and so we can pretty safely assume what would happen. Um, similar to a church service, but with some major differences. Um, usually segregated men and women. Um, often uh, nobles, those who were important, got to sit in better seats. Um, and it was often uh, around the, the side walls and the back wall, and sometimes with seating in the middle, depending on how many people were there. And often what would happen is the people would recite the Jewish confession of faith, the Shema. Okay, um, They would recite the 18 blessings, also called the Amidah. And then there would be a priestly blessing, likely that one from Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, then there would be a reading from the Torah, first five books okay, of Moses. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. And then there would be a sermon. Um, <laughs> so a message that probably wasn't as prepared or studied for in the moment, other than the fact that they had studied for it all their lives. <laughs> um, and so frequently there would just be an ask who wants to share today, which I think we should implement. Then, <laughs> um, and, and oftentimes people would stand up, but, but it wasn't always a free for all, right? You know, that there's the 16 year old there who really wants to preach and get up there and, and talk and be like, who wants to preach? And kind of his hands up and you're looking around for someone else. Um, th- there was kind of a, a roster and you would know who was who. And you could tell um, in, in different ways who might be there. There might be a specific ask. And this is what happens um, in the case of, of Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message, which I love. Sent a message in church. I don't know what that means. Justin, come here. I'm going to send, send this back to Jim. <laughs> I don't know. But somehow they, they, they indicate they send a message to Paul um, and Barnabas and ask them, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Uh, it's probably not just two anonymous guys. Oh, here's some guys that just walked in. Let's ask them. <laughs> um, there were likely contacts that had been made as they had entered the city. We don't think they entered on Shabbat morning. Um, they would have gotten in at least before the sun went down on Friday night when, sh- when Sabbath starts. Um, but probably before that in the middle of the week. And they would have made contacts. They would have figured out who these people are. And remember, Barnabas is a wealthy man. He, he Remember, he sold his property and gave it to the apostles several chapters ago. Um, he's a wealthy man. He's a teacher. He's been involved with all kinds of missions um, in, the, in the limited region so far. And then you have Paul. Paul's a Roman citizen, and he is well-trained by Gamaliel, who we met in chapter 5, one of the premier teachers in the Jewish world. So had they any inkling of this, Paul would be a sought-after speaker. It would be very important to have this man. Wow, this he's here. You know, someone else is supposed to go. They'd say, sit down. We got this guy here today. 
So Paul stands up. You also notice this is almost like Barnabas is passing, um, passing the baton. Uh, it's been happening a little bit, but kind of here we see Paul stand in and Barnabas takes a back seat, which, by the way, I think Barnabas was fine with. Son of encouragement. He brings Paul to the apostles. He goes and finds Paul. He's the kind of man, I think, from what we know of him, who would just be beaming to see his disciple, Paul, stepping into leadership here. We see then in the sermon that Paul gives several things. And point number two is the history of Israel. You just see this, the history of Israel. This is what he's going to do. He's going to review to the Jews that are there their own history. Now, why would you do that? They already know it. I mean, you learn something once and you've got it, right? It's all good? Never forget it? Sticks in your brain? Not forgetful? No, we need repetition, right? We need things repeated over and over to us. Um, we've sung some of those songs that we sing this morning hundreds of times. Um, and how many times do, do we sing a song on Sunday morning and you get choked up because of the importance of the words? Or how many times do you see something, a turn of phrase that you never noticed before and something that you've sung before? This is important for us to repeat, to, to relive, to tell the story out loud again and again. And you'll notice that Paul tells it to two people, well, two groups of people in verse 16. Men of Israel... And you who fear God. That word in Greek is literally, is literally God-fearers. Okay? It's where we get the word phobia. Okay? They're God-fearers. All right? And you'll notice, go down um, to verse 26 real quick. Look at 26. In the middle of the sermon, he says it again. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Likely what's happening is there are Jews who were born Jews, who were raised Jews, they were there in synagogue, like good Jews on, on a Shabbat morning. There are also God-fearers, kind of like Cornelius, who we met in Acts chapter 10. These are Gentiles. Um, there's some argument that these are a different subset of Jews. I don't think so. There are some who make that case. I think this is Gentiles who fear the Lord, but they have not fully proselytized into becoming Jews, okay? So that means the men haven't been circumcised. They may not follow all of the laws, or they may pick and choose or decide which ones are more of a priority, and they probably have not been renamed, and possibly, depending on the culture, may not have been baptized into Judaism. But they're well regarded by the Jewish people because they have decided to follow or to um, investigate Yahweh, which in itself meant at the very least that they needed to take a break from some idolatry and come over here and check out this God. And that they were then allowed to come into the synagogue and welcomed to come and observe and participate. Okay, so we have the men of Israel. We have the people of Israel. We have those who fear God, Gentiles. And I already read this. I'm not going to read all of it. But Paul very quickly goes through the history of Israel, which the people there would have known well. You might argue that the Gentiles did not know it as well, so they would need to hear it. But he reviews, starting from their time in Egypt. He briefly mentions the calling of the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he really drills down into the time that they were in Egypt. God rescued them out of Egypt. Verse 18, I love this phrase, don't miss this. He put up with them in the wilderness. Yes, he did. Those complainers and whiners. God, in his mercy, put up with them. And we are glad that he puts up with us as well. 
And then it talks about the conquest as Joshua brings the, the people of, of God into the land and they take the land. Verse 20 says all this took about 450 years. Um, and then he gave them judges. Samuel is the last, Samuel the prophet is the last judge because then they ask for a king and God gives them uh, the king they ask for and they get Saul who was of Benjamin, which by the way, the man speaking these words to them, his name is Saul and he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Very interesting. Verse 22, when he'd removed him, he raised up David to be their king. That word for raised up is the same word as Jesus being raised from the dead. He raises up David to be their king. And then he says those words, he has found David, a man who will do all his will, a man after God's own heart. And this is where Paul wants to focus in verse 23, because he shifts here from the story. He fast forwards a thousand years from David to Jesus is just around 1000 years. He fast forwards to John and Jesus. So in verse 23, he said, Of this man's, David's, offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. A soter. That was a word commonly used in the Roman world for a military leader who had conquered. A savior. A deliverer. And they would have been familiar with that word because Caesar was called that. Generals were called that. And Paul says, this is who Jesus is. He's a soter. He's a savior. Jesus, as he promised. And then he backtracks a little bit, talks about John, probably because they had heard of what John the Baptist had been doing and it had spread throughout the Jewish world. And so he wants to connect for them what John was doing to starting the ministry of Jesus. He he mentions John saying he wasn't the, the one who was to come, but he was preparing the way. He was not worthy to untie his sandals. Verse 26, when Paul resets things, And he says, again, sons of the family of Abraham and the God-fearers, he emphasizes to us that in in Greek, Greek is crazy. You can put words all over the place in different orders. And then when it comes into English, it says the same thing. Okay, word order is not as important. Except when you move a phrase to the front of a sentence, okay, which they get to do. You know, it's kind of like Yoda. You can like, if you put it right at the beginning, it's, so in Greek, you can put it at the front and they say, to us is the first words here, to us. And Paul's going to do that several times throughout this sermon. He wants to emphasize that. This is not just ancient history. The ancient history is intimately connected to you and me today. And notice, who's he talking to? He's not just talking to Jews. Who else is there? Gentiles. And he doesn't keep just, he differentiates them those two times. But he says, to us. The idea, I think, is that if you're seated in this synagogue, you're hearing these words, you have the opportunity to be one of us, Jew or Gentile. This is good news. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. Then he says something where he could start to get in trouble. So far, this has been, yes, okay, okay, sure, all right, all right, okay, oh, interesting. And now in verse 27, now we have some, uh, a part where there could be pushback. Because he then begins to criticize the rulers in Jerusalem. He begins to criticize, essentially, the high priest and the family, the Sadducees, the Pharisees who were there in Jerusalem. He criticizes them and he says two things which are really important to notice. What happened to these people? What are they to be warned about? Well, the people in Jerusalem did not recognize him. He's criticizing 
the Jewish people in Jerusalem, they should have, is the implication, they should have recognized Jesus, but they didn't. They are morally culpable for not noticing their Messiah. He was there in front of them, and they said, nope, he's not the Messiah. So as Paul speaks to the synagogue, he said, don't make the same mistake they did. And I would say that to all of us. Don't make the same mistake they did. Recognize Jesus for who he says he is in the authoritative word of God. And make sure you check claims made in the culture to the trustworthy word of God, to the best known document from the ancient world, the Bible. Didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. I mean, this is, this is a big deal here. This is like me going to Jacob and telling him all the stuff about his industry that I know nothing about and telling him he missed it. Whoa, what? You have, no, you have no way to say that. I can't go talk to Phil about buses and lecture him on buses. I don't know anything about buses other than they go. And if they don't, then they go to Phil and they fix them. Okay, like that's all I know. But this is, this is stepping on toes because Paul's coming into their area, their arena and saying, you missed it. Now, obviously, Paul has a lot of reason to be able to say that. Okay. But do we see who this guy was before? He was on the wrong side previous, right? And so this is dangerous. This is dangerous ground because he is criticizing the leaders that probably some at the synagogue in Antioch admired, had heard good things about, had good reputations. He says they missed it. How could they miss it? He, he digs it the knife in even deeper. They didn't understand the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Every Saturday, you heard the word of God and you missed it. That's scary. How many of you have spent more than half of your life at Village Bible Church? Okay. Half of your, more than half of your life. Good. All the kids who are here, almost all of them would raise their hand if they were here with us. You are in danger. The same danger that these Jews were in. Because familiarity breeds contempt. We must be careful. We must be careful. Just because you sit in the same seat that you've sat in for a decade and listen to good worship songs and hopefully some good sermons, it doesn't mean anything just to be here. Because you can miss it. Judas spent three years with Jesus and he missed it. We must be careful. There was, there's more that he tells. He tells about Jesus being executed by Pilate. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. That's an astonishing statement because that doesn't happen. I was talking to um, a few of my kids this week and said, you remember when we, we went on a scooter ride to the cemetery? We took a scooter ride. And they were like, what is this place? And we're like looking at the, the headstones and talking about, wow, this person was born 130 years ago and their body's in there. Ew, their body's in there? Yeah, they're buried under the ground. I said, we're talking about Jesus' resurrection because Easter's coming up. And I said, what if we were at the cemetery and we were standing there and someone came out? And one of my boys is like, think, I know he's thinking zombies. He's like, that'd be so crazy. It'd be scary. <laughs> then I was like, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> because the point is, you've never seen that happen. None of you have. 
None of us have seen that happen. But Jesus came out of the grave. And verse 31 emphasizes there were witnesses. They're still here. They're still alive. They can tell you that this thing is true. In verse 32, we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, to Abraham. Okay, guys, listen. Abraham lived 2,100 B.C. Okay? It's a little ways ago. This promise to Abraham, this promise to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to the children of Israel, this promise he has fulfilled to us. There it is again, to us, their children. Father Abraham had many sons, right? How did he do this? By raising Jesus. And now we have this place where we just don't have time to to cover all this. This is complicated stuff. But he quotes Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage and puts them together in a rather Jewish way where he sees one word in one passage and one word in another and then fits them together in a way that we might not do. But God has done it here in the scriptures. And he emphasizes that, that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, which Caesar was considered the Son of God. Jesus is the Soter. He's the Savior. He's also the Son of God. It could have been that on that temple in Antioch that there might have been uh, inscriptions to Caesar, the Son of God. Perhaps even to Caesar, the Savior, the Son of God. And here's Paul talking about Jesus, this Jew from a distant land. He is the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. He will never see corruption again. David did. This is the same point that Peter makes in the Pentecost sermon. David died. We know where his tomb is. There's his tomb. He's not coming out of it. His bones are in there. Jesus went in a tomb. Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. Jesus came out. Verse 37 says he did not see corruption. The idea is even, is it physical? His body didn't decompose. It was preserved. And three days later, he came back out of the grave. There was no corruption There was no disintegration. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. They are there to practice the law of Moses. They just read the law of Moses. And he says it couldn't free you. The law was good. God gave it to his people to help them, to help them along until the expiration date. And the expiration date has come. The law could not save you, but the one that the law promised has come and he can save you. He can forgive your sins, which means you don't need to slaughter bulls and lambs and pigeons because one has been slaughtered for you. And then he warns them in verse 40. Beware. Don't make Habakkuk 1.5 come true for you as it came true hundreds of years ago. And you can look at that on your own time. (laughs) The sermon ends with those Old Testament quotations. And the aftermath then begins. It was a great sermon. It was a really good sermon. Do you know why? Because the people beg afterwards. They begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. We want to hear your sermon next week. You know, I've, that's not happened too often. Oh my goodness. We can't wait to come back next week and sleep. I mean, stay awake for your sermon. 
But he had said so many things that had woken them up that they wanted to come back. Please, please come back. And it's not like they had a pastor who preached every week. Okay, there was a lot of rotation. There was a lot. This guy's a new guy, right? But they want this guy back. The meeting breaks up and many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And that's probably literally, like they literally walked with them, like talking about these things. But it also could be that they began to follow Paul and began to learn from him during the week. It's not like Paul was like, that's my 30 minutes. I don't want to see anybody during the week. I'll be back here. <laughs> he is, is, is discipling. They're, they're trying to set up a church. Okay? Verse 44, the next Sabbath comes and almost the whole city comes out. Now, this is a common hyperbole used in the Greco-Roman world. What does it mean? Does it mean, how do you get almost the whole city? Is that 50, 50% plus one? Is it 97%? I don't know. But more people came to synagogue the next week. <laughs> and it was a crowd. A lot of people came to hear. Perhaps it was like Jesus, people outside the building, straining to hear with no sound system. But, there were some jealous Jews. And let's be really clear here. This is not just to find all of the Jews because there are Jews following Paul. But it probably means that the, the, the Jewish leaders, those who had influence in the Jewish world and did not believe what Paul had said, are mad. They're jealous. They're trying to contradict what was Paul. They're, they're arguing with him. And then they begin to insult him, which is usually what we do when you start losing an argument. Right? Um, they revile him. It's the same word for blasphemy. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, which probably means that there was a pocket over here talking to Paul and Barnabas was over here and they're having discussions and things are getting lively. Okay, our Jewish guide in Israel said you get two, uh, three Jews in a room and there's four opinions. Okay, like there's just a lot of people uh, just talking and, and arguing and making points and argumentation and persuasion happening. But it begins to get a little out of control. Paul and Barnabas then speak out and they say, we came to you Jews first because that's the way it's supposed to be. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah 49.6 as precedent for that. There is Old Testament precedent for this. He's not just making it up. And when the Gentiles heard this, so you can imagine like a lot of Jewish people are arguing and some of the Gentiles are mixed in, but the Gentiles are kind of surrounded. And when they hear Paul and Barnabas stand up and say this loudly, the Gentiles are like, yeah! Yes! They are brought in. They begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. And that sounds like predestination. And it is. Okay, next verse. And I mean, look at the clock. The point here, by the way, no matter what you hold on election or predestination, is that God has taken the initiative to save people. And God has saved these people and they rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And God has prepared a people for himself. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Well, how did that happen? People told people who 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 went on a business trip and told people. The word spread. The word spread. Isn't that interesting? It's the word of the Lord. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city. It's very egalitarian. They are turning the tide of public opinion against Paul and Barnabas. So they stir up persecution and they drive them out. And as Paul and Barnabas leave, they shake that. I don't have a robe. I forgot my robe today. Um, but they shake out the folds of their robe. 
You think back in the day, we saw some stones, but there's dust everywhere in the ancient world. Dust upon dust, there's dust everywhere. There's no vacuums, there's no, there's, there's no asphalt for mostly, okay? There's no, not a lot of concrete. There's dust everywhere. There's dust all over you by the end of the day. So they're getting kicked out of town, and as they leave, they symbolically and literally shake the dust off. And this was actually what Jesus told his followers to do in Luke 9 and Luke 10. And it's symbolic of saying, we were in a dirty place. <laughs> that's, that's what the picture is. Get the dirtiness of your city off and we're out of here. It's a judgment. We came, we saw, you kicked us out. Good luck with that. It is judgment upon them. This is high stakes, real life. What happens? Persecution. They're gone. They weren't there very long. They're kicked out. What happens? Verse 52, the disciples were filled with anxiety and freaked out. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And because it's 11 o'clock, I'm going to give you those last few blanks, okay? (laughs) Concise, Joanne. Um, (laughs) They're telling the gospel story, the good news. The gospel means... The gospel means... It is good news. So, these are patterns that we would... We should see. They're not rules every time, but they are patterns that we can be confident will happen over time. Telling the gospel story will result in curiosity. Verse 42. Telling the gospel story will result in curiosity. It will. It will if we're brave enough and bold enough to speak it and know it, to give somebody a book, to interact with somebody's atheism, to interact with somebody's Islam, to interact and to trade, to read, to talk about ideas. Also, telling the gospel story will result in believers. It will. 43 and 48 say this. By the way, here we are. It did it. It did its work. And it's continuing to work. I hope it's working over in the kids' building right now. I hope it's working in this building. I hope it's working in churches all over Orange County. The gospel story is resulting in believers. If we will only speak it. If someone tells you, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, say, it is necessary to use words. It's good news. It's like telling the, the newscaster to like do an interpretive dance and tell us about what's happening in Ukraine. What? Just tell me what's happening in Ukraine, right? Tell me the news. Tell me the gospel. Telling the gospel story will result in jealousy and opposition for a variety of reasons. Some of them very sad. Intramural reasons. Telling the gospel story will result in persecution. It will result in persecution. Not all the time, not every time, but it will over time. Telling the gospel story will result in joy and glory to God. Telling the gospel story will result in joy and glory to God. That sounds like an adventure. That sounds like danger. That sounds like rescue, delivery, It sounds like a good story. And it could be a good sermon. So get your story straight. Tell others the gospel. Tell yourself the gospel. How many of you need the gospel on Monday mornings? (laughs) Yes. Tell yourself the gospel again and again because we're forgetful people. And we begin to think we're earning something or we're not earning something when we remember that Jesus did the earning for us. It's salvation by works, Jesus' works, grace to us, faith from us in Jesus' work. 
Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to learn from your word. Lord, I am reminded of my too often reticence and cowardice to share the gospel. My concern for, I don't know, my reputation or to be cool or to fit in or to not rock the boat. Lord, help us rather to be bold. I pray this week that you would open up opportunities for us and that we would pray for those opportunities to share the gospel story, that good news might be shared. Lord, I pray that we would see the fruit of that in baptisms and more members and more people coming to be trained to go out and tell the world this very good news. Lord, be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.